values, and strong opinions. The Mike Bloomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Now, this is the movie that should have swept the Academy Awards right here. This is the one. This is the one that should have won all the awards last night um, because it's the only one I saw this year. Um, so here's a here's a headline, and I wonder where you stand on this. Uh, politics – I say politics aside, but there's no way you can set politics aside. Um, Asylum denier in chief. Dem senator says Biden should not resume migrant family detention. This is Senator Bob Menendez from New Jersey uh, talking. He said, you have to be critical of new changes in border policies that Secretary Mayorkas has done. What's your alternative and what is your level of confidence in Secretary Mayorkas? So Senator Menendez says this is not about Secretary Mayorkas. This is about the administration. The best part of the administration's immigration policy over the first two years. Years is that they ended family detention, which proved to be a failure under both the Obama and the Trump administration as a way to deter individuals for, from coming. Well, the reason why the Biden administration is considering this is because they have had such an abysmal failure at the border. There was another huge, what, a thousand people in El Paso. Um, uh, it was it was amazing how many people were in El Paso, Texas, trying to get in across the border. Over one thousand migrants rushed the bridge linking Mexico to the U.S. in El Paso, Texas. So, what are we going to do about this? This is to me a big issue. Senator Menendez also um, was asked about designating cartels a terrorist organization, which I found fascinating. His response is a little bit odd to me. Well, that has a, a certain designation. We've saved that for truly terrorist organizations in the world. Uh, certainly, they are uh, consequential uh, to questions of national security. I'm more interested in doing something uh, that ultimately uh, uh, seeks to destroy the cartels than to just name them. You know, you name them a foreign terrorist organization, that in and of itself means nothing. Well, what – you're right. Just calling somebody something does nothing. But what comes along with that designation? I've talked about that now for a while. If you designate them a terrorist organization, what does that actually do? What does it free up? What does it allow the American government by our laws? What does it allow us to do? But we all have to acknowledge that whether it's fentanyl or it is human trafficking – the cartels have zero concern for human life. They are abusing the people that they are getting to our southern border. They are lying to them about things. And no one is winning. No one has an advantage from what is happening with our border issue um, except for the cartels themselves. So what is it that Senator Menendez believes should be done? The Biden administration is going is caught between a rock and a hard place, politically speaking, because they have to decide, do they defend their base and do what their base wants or do they do what is necessary? I can say the right thing, but that would be unfair, even though I think they're wrong. Do they have to make a decision to say we've got to secure the border and we got to do a better job and the way we're doing it isn't working? And those are the considerations. I want you to hear this is the fallout of this. It's not a hard-hearted situation for me. Asylum dreams remain elusive for tens of thousands of migrants bust to New York. So migrants have been taken to New York. New Yorkers are saying it may cost them a billion dollars 
to take care of these migrants that are in their city and they're waiting extended periods of time for their hearings. Well, the reason is because the border is overrun. We don't have a new system. Now, there was an exclusive interview here at KTAR News with Senator Mark Kelly. Senator Kelly is talking about an expansion of visa programs so that it helps um, farmers and ranchers and other businesses in Arizona. This is something that should have been looked at a long time ago. This is just my opinion. Um, Because when you couple this with um, the security issue with the cartels presented Mexico, you're talking about destabilizing Mexico. If the legitimate businesses in Mexico are suffering, their tourism is suffering, whether it's medical tourism or tourism with spring break or other people vacationing in Mexico, if those industries and the tax base and all that happens in Mexico from those businesses, if they suffer – It further destabilizes the government and it empowers the cartels. Um, Here is a story. There are more women. There are new women. This is Matt Rivers from ABC. More women missing in Mexico. Mexican authorities desperately searching for three women living in Texas who disappeared after crossing the border. According to authorities, the three Mexican nationals, sisters Maritza and Marina Rios, and their friend Dora Sainz, departed from Piñetas, Texas on February 24th, heading to sell clothes at a flea market about three hours south of the border. Three days later, the husband of one of the women reporting them missing, saying he had not been able to contact them since shortly after their departure. The FBI saying Friday it is is aware of the disappearances. So what are the safety tips? Here's Matt Rivers continues from ABC. This is talking about people traveling to Mexico. These are some of the safety tips that are being given out by our government in places. State of Texas is doing this and others. If you're going to go, you better know some of this stuff. Don't take too much cash with you. Don't be obvious. You know, use trusted taxi services. Don't go exploring on your own into neighborhoods that maybe you don't know all that much about. And, you know, a final thing, especially if you're going to areas that are known for partying, Look, if you go down the street in Playa del Carmen and you're looking for drugs, there's violence that is often associated with that. Now, we know that that's the same thing on the streets of America. I'm not saying any of this to badmouth Mexico. But, like, we have street gangs in America that run parts of cities. Uh, you know, I have um, I had the privilege this year of, of, of uh, listening to some of the most foremost experts on gang violence in Arizona at a conference this year. And these are gang cops. This is what they do for a living. They are geniuses at this. They are the intel Specialists on gang violence and gang involvement. And there are major cities in our country where the gangs control neighborhoods. And that's where the problem lies. The people that live in those neighborhoods either are told, you're either with us or you're against us. But if you're not with us, you better leave us alone. You better keep your mouth shut. You better keep your eyes closed. You don't know anything. You don't say anything. You don't do anything. And they're watching neighborhoods being taken over. Crime is high. Wherever there's drugs, there's violence. We see it here as well. But we all also have a better equipped government um, agencies, whether it's local law enforcement, state law enforcement, federal law enforcement, that are not nearly as corrupt as what we see. And I say nearly. They aren't corrupt. Um, that doesn't mean there aren't isolated incidents of corruption, but they are not um, corrupt. And in Mexico, that's not necessarily the case, that the cartels own the police, are the police departments in many cases. And that's where it gets to be scary. Um, Here's a final headline. A cleaning crew finds $5.4 million worth of drugs 
and guns in Scottsdale in a short-term rental. This happened three days ago. The discovery was made in late December by a cleaning crew, so the the story came out three days ago, who showed up at the home near 86th Street and Camelback to clean up after people stayed there. Police say 1.7 million fentanyl pills, 110 pounds of meth, and seven and a half pounds of cocaine were found in this home. So are they a terrorist organization, and what do we do to their associates? It's a great question. Coming up in a moment, we get you caught up on the biggest news stories of the day. It's something we call Did You Hear This? We'll get it in just a second. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. The biggest headlines and news stories of the day. Did you hear this? Did you hear this? Broomhead's reaction to the hottest news stories. President Biden made a statement about the situation of Silicon Valley Bank and wanting to reassure Americans that their money is safe. Your deposits will be there when you need them. Small businesses across the country, the deposit accounts at these banks can breathe easier knowing they'll be able to pay their workers and pay their bills. And their hardworking employees can breathe easier as well. How could this failure affect future interest rate hikes? Yeah, that's the concern is they're thinking that possibly that the silver lining on this dark cloud could be that the Fed may slow down interest rate hikes, seeing these banks collapse, Um, that some of these investments now and the interest rate hikes are collapsing or at least damaging some of the banks. So Wall Street actually responded fairly well to this. It was up a little bit today. It's been down. It's back up now 148 points. So I don't know the long term effects, but we do understand understand that interest rates and what's going on with bad investments, we're seeing some banks collapse at the regional level, and everybody is a little bit concerned about the bank that they bank with. While many are sounding the alarm about traveling to Mexico in the near future, some destinations are making the cut. While some parts of Mexico are incredibly dangerous, many popular tourist destinations are not. The State Department rates popular spots like Cancun or Cabo San Lucas or even here in Mexico City a risk level two out of four. That is the exact same rating given to Germany, the UK, and Italy. Would you feel safe going to some of the tourist destinations in Mexico? Yeah, I think I would. The issue is, I think, for the American consumer is if you've never been to Mexico, if it's your first trip or you're not a frequent traveler and you don't know it very well, that people are saying, I'm not going to take my chances of going into the wrong place. I think that's where this is. But I, I don't think Mexico is any different, any different than any other place where you've got really nice places and places that aren't so nice. It's having this reputation overall that's going to scare people away. And I think in the long run, they have to show themselves to be safe and a good place for Americans or they're going to start losing at least some of their business. You are listening to Did You Hear This? We do it every day at this time to catch you up on the headlines. Record sales are making a huge comeback. The Recording Industry Association of America said last week that for the first time in more than 30 years, record sales surpassed CD sales. In 2022, there were 41 million record sales versus 33 million CDs. Do you still have your records? I don't, and I wish I did. I do not have my record collection. But I think that this is about what you just said. I think vinyl is a lot more collectible and more attractive to people. The CD was a very sterile thing for someone coming from my generation. I loved records. I still love 
records, the albums. You would read the front and the back. You would read everything on it. A lot of times the covers were really cool. And I can still remember the very first record I bought with my own money was an album called Pieces of Eight by the band Sticks. I still remember the album. Um, and so there was a romance about music back then. CDs were kind of a sterile thing. Well, now you've got digital, which is easier than both. But if you're going to go with the romance, you're going to go with what you love. I think it's on vinyl, and that's why it still remains popular. Arizona schools did pretty well in punching their tickets to the NCAA March Madness Tournament. When you only have four chances in the state of Arizona to get a team into the tournament and three of them punch their ticket, 75% conversion rate, that's nothing to sneeze that's at right there. That's pretty good, yeah. yeah. And it was almost 100%. Almost so. 100%. Does this help put Arizona schools on the map? Yeah, I think it's. I, I think overall we're seeing a lot more of that. I, I think there was a concern, and uh, I don't know how many of you were aware of it or even care, but when GCU basketball was trying to get into the WAC, when they were trying to go Division One, there was some pushback by the other Arizona colleges because they thought that they didn't want that competition. They didn't think it was good for the game. I think that it is great for the game. And the fact that GCU, in my opinion, it wants to be the Gonzaga of the West, the Southwest, now they've got an opportunity to upset Gonzaga in the tournament is a great story. I'm happy for GCU. I'm glad that ASU's in the play-in game. I wish, I wish that NAU would have won that game and won their tournament. Then we'd have all four schools in, but this can't do anything but help basketball in the state of Arizona, and I'm happy to see it. All right, that is, uh, that is, did you hear this? Good job as always, Julia. Hey, Jeff. Let me ask you a question. I'm going to put you on the spot. Can Uh-oh. I put, you, well, you're the basketball broadcaster in the room. <laughs> yeah. ASU into the play-in game again this year. Good for the program. Should they have done better? Do you think this was the right choice? I don't know if, if they – I don't have an answer to the question, should they have done better. I do think it's obviously a great thing for the program. Here's a little history. I'll do this quick. Bobby Hurley's going to the tournament for a third time as ASU head coach. Could have been four if there hadn't been the pandemic. The last time an ASU head coach went to more than two NCAA tournaments, you got to go back 60 years. Oh, wow. So it's a good thing for the program. Uh, and I think it's – I agree there. I think having all these teams in the tournament – I don't know if you've seen the bracket, but yeah. there is a chance ASU could play Grand Canyon in the first weekend. Oh, really? In so, Denver. They're both in Denver. And if ASU could beat Nevada and TCU yeah. and Grand Canyon beat Gonzaga, which admittedly would be a stretch. A stretch. But if that happens, you got ASU against Grand Canyon on Sunday in Denver. And the, 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 in the, if that happened, the vibe in that building would be off the charts. It is great. I think that's even the potential of that is terrific. And that was going to be my question. Does ASU, if they win the play-in game against TCU, is it a lock TCU wins that game? Or has ACU got a good chance? I don't know enough about TCU, ASU. but I think the way ASU plays, if they shoot well from outside, from the three-point line, and uh, they are dangerous against just about anybody. You can ask the U of A about that. Yeah. And I think if they're shooting well, yeah, I think they can not only beat Nevada, they can beat TCU. If they were to play Gonzaga in that round of 32, well, now you're starting to talk about (laughs) something else altogether. Well, isn't it fun because you know I'm a casual fan at best, not nearly the expert you are, but isn't it fun to be talking about this tournament? Tons. Uh, it's great fun. I would have been crushed if they had, if ASU hadn't made it yesterday. Uh, they had already said we'll go to the NIT if we don't make it. But they they played well enough. Twenty two wins. They deserve to be in, and they got in. Yeah, and it's so funny about the NIT. Everybody calls it the not invited tournament. Yeah, but it's still a good tournament. 
it's a good tournament and it's a good experience for programs that are built on the way up. Correct. And that's true in both the men's and the women's I game. Agree. I can cite a ton of examples in the women's game where going to their NIT has benefited programs. Thanks, Jeff. Jeff is our you resident expert. And uh, all right, so coming up in a moment, uh, what are the implications of this bank collapse? We talked about it a moment ago. We'll give you more details from an expert next. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show. KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. All right. What are the implications of a bank failure? Right now, the Dow Jones is up 173 points, the S&P, and that's about half a percent. S&P is up 30. NASDAQ is up 167, which is a point and a half. Um, so we are seeing that for the most part, it's a good thing. But for the banks, Citigroup is down over 6%. Bank of America is down 3.6%. Um, JP Morgan is down 1%. So we are seeing that uh, a lot of uh, these banks are hurting today because people are questioning and they aren't feeling safe with investments in those banks. Listen, I'm not giving you advice. I will never give financial advice. I'm giving you information. Um, I'm certainly not telling you how to invest or how not to invest. The average American consumer looks at things like this and they want to know when I go and I put my money in a bank, I want to know that it's going to be there when I need it. I, I need to know that if I need to make a withdrawal of every penny I have in that bank, I can get it. Um, if you're running a small business, you choose to bank with a bank that treats you well and that you trust. But you also need to know when my payroll gets ready to cash out twice a month or once a week, whatever it is, that the money is going to be there and I'm not going to have to worry about how I'm going to pay my employees. So I talked with Kristen Bentz, and I've mentioned before, Kristen, and we're using some of her comments in the newscast. You can hear Jeff talking about them. Uh, Kristen Bentz is a retail analyst by trade, but she understands this world so very well and is able to speak about it in, in, in simplified terms. Um, and so I talked to her about what this situation is. Um, and so I want you to just hear that. This is what we started with. This was the beginning of the interview. Kind of break down this situation. SVB was a top 20 regional bank in the country, right? So it's not just some tiny little bank. What they were doing is um, lending money to startups. Some of those startups were very lucrative and they put all their money back in the bank. And some of those startups were not so lucrative. So what do banks do when you give them money? They invest it to make more money. And they invested in some kind of risky investments, basically. And when the Fed raised all these interest rates, they kind of got caught on the wrong side of that trade. So that's like anything else. If you have somebody that invests money for you, you want to know that they're investing your money the right way. So when it comes to a bank, is your bank solvent? And that's where people are asking questions. Now, there's people promising. The president's one of them, but the Fed, you know, people in our federal government, I shouldn't say the Fed, but people in our federal government are saying that, you know, this is not going to be 2008, that we are not going to see big bank crashes. We're not going to see these big bailouts. We're not seeing those things. So uh, the president made it a point to say, listen, your your money is safe that, you know, you're uh, I want you to hear this. This is the president speaking about this. Your deposits will be there when you need them. Small businesses across the country, the deposit accounts at these banks can breathe easier knowing they'll be able to pay their workers and pay their bills. And their hardworking employees can breathe easier as well. And then he said, you can get your money. All customers who had deposits in these banks can rest assured. I want to rest assured they'll be protected and they'll have access to their money as of today. 
That includes small businesses across the country that bank there and need to make payroll, pay their bills and stay open for business. So that's reassurance to the American people. But how much and I'm not this is not I'm very critical of the Biden administration. I'm not a big fan of the policies. This isn't a criticism of President Biden. This is a question that Americans are asking. How much can you trust the government to tell you the truth in this regard? Now, it's not a knock. I'd be asking the same question no matter who the president was. After what we've seen and after what we are seeing right now, how much do you trust this information? And that's one of the big issues. So when I talked with Kristen Benz, you know, the FDIC is the insurance part of the federal government. They are the insurance company that uh, that uh, insures your deposits in a bank. If you have a couple hundred thousand dollars in the bank or up to two hundred fifty thousand, it's insured by the FDIC. So, you know, you're going to be safe. Did the FDIC, they also now manage and they watch, you know, how good these banks are behaving. Did they know about this? Well, everyone's going to start taking a look at where they're banking, right? And how healthy is your bank? And this begs the question, Mike, over, you know, did the FDIC know that this 20th largest bank was making risky investments? I'm going to say they probably did. <laughs> so everyone's going to start, you know, raising a few eyebrows about where they're putting their money. And then that also hurts regional banks. So the other part of this now, let's let me flip this coin a little bit and look on the other side of it. If they are now going to banks are now going to be scrutinized further about the investments that I make, whether it's mortgages or the investments they make with people's money. Um, you know, there was a new set of rules after the after the real estate crash. There was a big thing that happened during the big housing boom of the Bush administration that there were banks that were giving what was called stated income loans, which meant you didn't have to prove income. You just wrote down on a piece of paper what you were telling them you made for a living. So you needed to make two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year to qualify for the this mortgage, you knew you could make the payment. Let's say that. In your mind, yes, we can make that mortgage payment. That's not a problem. So what you did was you said, okay, um, it, based on your credit rating and your, you know, the, the debt you have in order to qualify for this loan, you need to make at least $200,000 a year. So you wrote $210,000 a year on that stated income loan. You have to prove it, but that's what you wrote down. Now, I'm not saying everybody lied. I'm saying it was a stated income loan. The, the requirements were a little bit more loose than they were after. Now, when you get a loan, you got to prove your income. I've, you know, when I purchased a home recently, I had to prove a lot, and then I had a gap in employment for a while. That was my choice. It was my choice for that gap. They even wanted a, an explanation as to why there was a gap in my employment going back th- over three years. So they were asking a lot more questions. The concern now will be if there's even going to be more scrutiny into how solvent your bank is. Are banks going to become even tighter with loaning money? We know people are having a tough time qualifying for home mortgages, that it's harder and harder to get the down payment and to qualify even with interest rates where they are. So this is going to be something that's going to be going on for quite a while. And I think that that's going to be a big issue. Now, we'll find out what how the government involvement is. Once again, I, and I just tweeted it out if you're someone that follows me on social media, but my full interview with Kristen Bench, she is always a great interview, but this is especially telling because she's got some insight and she does simplify it so that somebody that's not a banker that doesn't understand this industry, it kind of breaks down for you why this is important. So if you'd like to hear the interview, it'll be on the podcast or if you follow me on social media, it's up on Twitter right now with the link. Um, you can see that on the podcast page. Uh, coming up in a moment, 
What I want to finish with is the relationship in Washington, D.C. between the two major political parties. Does it make a difference in how the country is run? I'll tell you why I'm asking coming up in just a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Some people are calling this a good sign. Other people, I would guess, say aren't. But uh, back in the days when Nancy Pelosi was Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy was the minority leader, people said there was absolutely no relationship between the two offices. Phone calls were not returned. Nancy Pelosi once called McCarthy a moron. And McCarthy reportedly joked that it'd be hard not to hit Pelosi on the head when he took the speaker's gavel. But now the minority leader is uh, is uh, Hakeem Jeffries from New York, and Kevin McCarthy is the Speaker of the House. And according to some, that they are often seen huddling during sessions of Congress and talking. They return phone calls. They've developed a rapport. Uh, one member, one Republican member said, I'm not going to call them best friends. Certainly not going to call them best friends. But I do think that some degree of communications is important, and they return one another's calls, which makes it in stark contrast to what has gone on before. A Republican from New York, uh, Stefanik, Elise Stefanik, um, the, House, the chairwoman of the House GOP conference said McCarthy and Jeffrey's relationship is very positive. Um, I have learned throughout my years that I can disagree with people without disliking them, and I, I, it's my hope that it can be reciprocated. I think we work best when that happens, especially if we have a common goal. Now, if we're in a situation where we don't have anything, any common goal, we're just debating ideologies, that's fun as well, but I would rather do it in a way where it is, um, it is cordial. And, you know, again, uh, this uh, brings to mind to me my, my situation with the audit here in Arizona and the idea of a stolen election in 2020. Um, I never subscribed to it. And I was, you know, I, I maintained and I still maintain, as far as I know, a very cordial relationship with the people that were in charge of, of the audit itself. And I still maintain that it was done the wrong way. But I did it without insulting them or going after their character. As far as I know, they've never gone after my character. We just disagreed on the issue. And I'd like to keep it that way. But what we do see in American politics is the base of both political parties are very staunch in their beliefs and very isolationist. In other words, it, Kevin McCarthy will take a lot of heat if he says anything positive about Hakeem Jeffries, if it looks as if that relationship is one that's beneficial. And the, especially because the Republicans are in power right now, the Democrat base will be very angry if Hakeem Jeffries works with uh, <clears throat> uh, McCarthy to get things done that would make McCarthy look like he's accomplishing things. Because in two years, less than two years, they're going to want to try to gain the House back. And a very unsuccessful House and a stalemate under Kevin McCarthy lends itself to a better chance of a Democrat takeover. So the base of each political party has a vested interest in not working with the other side. That's where I think they run into problems. And this isn't a guess. I talk to people that are elected officials at our state level, at the federal level, and we hear the same thing on both sides of the aisle. I, I, it was refreshing to me to, after all the vitriol we hear about in Arizona politics, last year, 
I was invited on to as to be an honored guest. I guess that's what it's called, but a guest on the floor of a legislator, Teresa Martinez from uh, from Casa Grande. And they had given a proclamation to KTAR because KTAR turned 100 and they asked me to come down and receive the um, the, the proclamation, which it was an honor. But I got to meet legislators from both sides of the aisle and I got to watch our legislators interact. And I can tell you it wasn't uh, you stand on your side of the room and we'll stand on our side of the room and we don't like each other. There seemed to be a lot of debate. I went to an education committee hearing where a lot of ideas were being thrown around about changing and improving education. And there were people from both sides of the aisle that seemed to be getting along famously. And it isn't just about to your face getting along. It's about relationships. And even though I believe you want to do the right thing, I don't think that's the right thing. And you have an opportunity to say that to someone and know that when something else comes along that you can work together on. There's a relationship that does that. That's what a healthy um, body does. We disagree on this one. You're not going to get me to cave on this one. I'm never going to support that. But keep me in mind for something else. And just because I said no to you this time doesn't mean that you're going to say no to me next time out of spite. We know that happens. But in a, in a, in a real world situation that is a perfect situation, both sides look at what's best. You negotiate where you can. You stand your ground where you have to without demonizing each other. But I will tell you that the voting base, the people that get involved first, the people that are the loudest, the people that volunteer their time, the people that make demands, and the people that will do their best to run you out of office if you disagree with them, largely are people in your own party. And it's, it's, to me, it's sad that people are so entrenched politically that they take it as a personal affront when someone dares disagree with them or worse yet works with somebody on the other side of the aisle they're the enemy and it's it's very strange the political labels that get thrown around is this a good sign so let me close with that question is it a good sign to you to see republican leadership and democrat leadership having at least a cordial relationship and working together where it seems to be a no-brainer that seems to be a good first step to me. We'll see how it ends up playing out. Social media users, now's the time to write it down. At Broomhead, K-T-A-R on Twitter. That is me. If you hear a comment, or sorry, read a comment you're not very happy with or you love, that came directly from me. At Broomhead Show is the Twitter account that updates you about guests and what's happening on the show. Please follow both. And uh, Mike Broomhead, all one word on Instagram. That's where you follow me between shows. Back tomorrow morning at about 8. Have a great day, everyone. God bless. We'll be right back.